The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. This program will provide the groundwork you need to advance your awareness and be involved in the approaching transformation in consciousness. Now, your host, Peter Tung. Hello and welcome to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. And I'm your host, Peter Tung. Thank you for joining us today. The intention in these episodes is to give you insights into how the planet is shifting in frequency and vibration to a new level of awareness and how you can be part of this grand awakening. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the show today Andrew Collins. This show, as many of you know, has a consciousness of its own and it seems to be bringing together people right now who have a very important message for us to gather for what is taking place on the planet at this time. And Andrew is an expert on the ancient civilizations, the true origins of humankind, the connection between man-made structures and the cosmic blueprint. And there are so many different things that Andrew and I could discuss today, but we are going to focus our attention specifically on the Cygnus mystery and all that that involves. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Uh, Good afternoon, Peter. <laughs> it's just afternoon here, just by a couple of minutes. So one of the areas of, of your study has been Gebekli Tepe, the ancient civilization in uh, southern Turkey. So perhaps yeah. you could begin by giving our listeners a little bit of an insight, first of all about you yourself and where how yeah. you've come to where you are, and then go on to talk about Gebekli Tepe. Okay, well, um, I mean, basically, I, I'm a writer. Um, my field is the ancient mysteries, you know, anything that's essentially got a question mark after it, uh, particularly if it's associated with, with um, you know, the, the distant past. Um, and I've, I've written various books on um, Egypt, Atlantis, angels, uh, the origins of civilization, Tutankhamun, you know, lot, lots of subjects like this. But um, in the year 2000, um, I was made aware of the discovery in southeast Turkey of a whole series of stone enclosures, stone circles. Um, some people might even term them uh, temples that had been uncovered uh, very close to the city of Şanlıurfa, um, which is, uh, say, in the southeast of the, the country. Um, and these were found on a mountain top and they'd been completely covered by earth that had been brought in from somewhere else plus a whole load of other debris and stone chippings whatever and completely covered over you know a huge area you know hundreds of, of, of meters across and wide um, and 
the, an archaeologist, a German by the name of Dr. Klaus Schmidt, went there in the mid-1990s, uh, and he noticed on the surface not just um, hundreds of um, flint tools, you know, work tools, but also evidence of carved stones, um, which looked so sophisticated that somebody that had previously gone to the site had actually dismissed them as part of a cemetery only about a thousand years old, which is why the whole site had never really come to the fore before this time. But anyway, this German archaeologist recognised the, the importance of this place, having worked on similar sites in, in the region. And he started excavating, and they uncovered four massive stone enclosures, um, all of them um, with these huge twin monoliths in their centre, um, around which were circles of these stones which had T-shaped tops to them um, and they were all facing radially towards the twin monoliths in the centre. Um, and many of the stones actually have the most beautiful carvings on of strange and actually quite dangerous creatures, you know, lions and bulls and snakes and various different uh, large birds, uh, scorpions, arachnids, things like this. Um, and the level of sophistication and technology here was absolutely extraordinary. And yet the most amazing thing is that it had been constructed shortly after the end of the last ice age, um, probably around 11,500 years ago. Um, and here it was being uncovered for the first time, something absolutely unique in the world. The oldest so-called monumental, monumental architecture ever uncovered anywhere. And of course, this was a huge mystery. However, I'd already written about this very same area saying that something like this would be found because there was evidence of high culture that had been discovered all over the region that pointed towards the fact that there was some kind of lost civilization or lost culture that must have existed here that brought forward all of this knowledge and wisdom that allowed all of these first for mankind to have occurred here, including the so-called um, Neolithic Revolution, you know, the, the revolution in agriculture that essentially began in this very area, probably within 100 miles of Gobekli Tepe itself. But of course, the bigger mystery was what was the function of these monuments? Um, you know, what, what did they serve? What about the rites and the rituals that were being done by the, the priests and the shamans that presumably would have operated them? And remember, at this time, this was just before agriculture spread throughout the region. So the people that actually created the earliest and the actual biggest temples at Gebekli Tepe um, were hunter-gatherers. They're people whose normal lifestyle would have been, you know, following herd animals, you know, um, and their whole life would have revolved around this. So why should they have given up their lifestyle to create this inc these incredible monolithic structures? There was absolutely no obvious reason why they should have done this. So this became, you know, my my quest, if you like, to try and uncover what was going on. And I was first able to go there uh, in 2004. Um, and 
when I went there, I mean, there was no road to get there. I had to walk across essentially the, the mountain top to, to get there. Um, and there was nobody there when I got there, not, not even um, a, a guard. But eventually, um, well, I was there with a, an interpreter um, and a driver. Um, and eventually a couple of farmers came off the field and they were the people that had actually been trying to tell the authorities um, that there was something at this place because they kept finding pieces of carved stone or whatever. They'd been trying to tell people for about the last 20 years and nobody had really taken them seriously. So they were the only people that, that we actually saw there. So we were able to go around, take photographs, look at it. But to me, as I observed this place, you know, I just looked at these incredible carved stones and just thought, you know, what was going on in the minds of these people? You know, and that was it. How do I get into the mindset of these people? Well, when I actually came back from there, um, I couldn't get this place out of my head. Um, it was almost like it was haunting my dreams. It was just haunting my day. People would try and have conversations with me about other things. And, you know, I just could not get it out of my mind. Um, and then one night I had this eureka moment, really, um, where it just sort of came to me that these were aligned um, to um, a particular star. And I started to check the alignments, and I found that they were all pointing roughly in the, the same direction. And this was the north-northwest. Um, and I actually, you know, I tried to work out what it was, even before I, I, I looked at astronomical programs. Um, and I, I worked out that a number of indigenous cultures in the region all focused their monuments towards the north, um, with entrances to their buildings in the south, and that they venerated the stars of the northern night sky. So I realised that something similar may be going on at Gebekli Tepe, um, and I started pinning down the possibilities, and it became obvious that only one set of stars seemed to fulfil not just the alignment but the interest of the peoples of this region, and that was Cygnus, um, the celestial bird, which we know mostly in, in Europe and Asia as a great swan, or a swan goose, as it, as it is in, in, um, in Hindu tradition. Um, however, in various parts of the world, Cygnus is seen as um, uh, a bird of all sorts. It can be an eagle, a hawk, a bird of paradise, uh, the magpie in China, uh, but universally it is seen as a bird, basically. It's also the cross of Calvary, according to Christian astronomy. Um, it's, it's the cross of death and resurrection of Christ himself. Um, and, and Christians of the Middle Ages um, would see quite uh, uh, significance in the fact of Cygnus being actually vertically on the horizon, like a like the cross of Christ standing there, this became a very important symbol for them. But it's something which seems to have been recognised as important during the age of Gebekli Tepe. Um, and one of the reasons for this is that it sits at the position where the Milky Way splits in two to form two separate branches or streams with a dark area along the centre which is known as the 
Dark Rift or the Cygnus Rift. And this runs from Cygnus all the way down to the constellations of Sagittarius and Scorpio, which is the exact position where the sun actually crosses the Milky Way um, on its path of the ecliptic. Um, and this dark rift has universally been seen as a point of entry and exit to the sky world. Um, it's there within Native American myth. It's there within Mexican uh, myth amongst the, the Maya. Um, it's there in South America um, amongst the, um, the Inca. Um, it's there in, in uh, India and parts of Asia. And it certainly seems to have been a focus of attention of various stone circles and other megalithic monuments in different parts of Europe, uh, including uh, the great uh, complex of Avebury um, in southern England, which is also aligned to the setting of Cygnus. In fact, the brightest star of Cygnus um, is Deneb, um, and this seems to be the main marker that is uh, used with these monuments to focus their attentions on when it sets or when it rises. Um, and even in Egypt, uh, a lot of people associate the, um, the stars of Orion with um, the Great Pyramids. Um, however, it is a fact that the stars of Cygnus actually fit far better um, over the, um, the pyramids to, con to, to create an alignment um, which is not only vertical, as in from above, but sideways because the, the, the stars of Cygnus could have been watched setting down into one each of the pyramids during the, the actual pyramid age, which is quite a remarkable thing. So universally Cygnus is important, but one of the things about Gebekli Tepe is that other people have different views. Um, and recently, um, archaeo astronomers, that, that, those are, you know, uh, basically historians that are working within the field of astronomy have come up with some different ideas. Um, I mean, for instance, my, my colleague, Dr. Robert Schock, um, the geologist at Boston University, uh, feels that the, um, the, the, the temples at Gebekli Tepe are aligned to the south towards the stars of Orion. In fact, the three belt stars. Um, however, we've checked the, um, the, the, the alignment, and for this to work, the, the, uh, the, the enclosures at Gebekli Tepe would have to be at least a thousand years younger than what the dating evidence is coming up with now, the so-called radiocarbon dating evidence of um, organic materials from the different enclosures is throwing up dates that are much earlier than any alignments could have been possible with Orion. So um, actually, Andrew, I'm going to bring you to a, a close there. I'm, I'm actually absolutely fascinated by uh, the way you're leading this, but I need to take a break uh, for a moment, take a breath. And when we come back, because obviously many people know about the connections to Orion and the Pleiades and to um, uh, Sirius. And, and so Cygnus, I would imagine for most of our listeners, it's a, it's a new idea which I really want you to expand on when we return. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This 
This is the Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to myheartcenteredjourney.com for more information. Health is in your hands. What you do and what you don't do sets the course for the path of your life. Listen for wise chats, simple talk, profound wisdom with Dr. Mary Jo Bulbrook. Through this series, we'll explore energetic approaches to health and healing that provide practical and personal solutions. Our guests will share ideas and insights that will help us all adopt new behaviors and create lasting internal shifts. Wise Chats can be heard every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. You're listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Having a fascinating discussion today with Andrew Collins. And actually, if you go to my website, www.petertung.com, and go to the newsletter, click on the newsletter section, and go to August 2012, which is obviously exactly a year ago, uh, in my Skywatch report, I actually wrote about and, and showed a, a diagram of the, of the Summer Triangle, which includes uh, the Swan constellation that Andrew is talking about, and Deneb and Vega and Altair making the uh, Summer Triangle. And right now, in North America, certainly, and I think in Britain as well, um, Vega is right at the top of the sky, and you can you can pick out Deneb and Altair as the summer triangle, and then as it gets darker in the evening, uh, you can begin to make out the full uh, swan structure in in the constellation. And I strongly recommend that by the end of this show and and what Andrew is having to share, be a really good idea to go out in the bright uh, starlit nights of the next few weeks and look up. I think you'll find uh, there's a beautiful connection that can be made looking through that triangle and looking at the swan, which actually points down uh, between the two other stars in the triangle. Uh, anyway, it's absolutely crystal clear right now on a clear night to go and have a probably the best look, look that you can actually uh, at the Cygnus constellation. And also a reminder to go to www.myheartcenteredjourney.com and our Ambassadors of Light program. We have a class every two weeks, uh, keeping you up to date with what is happening in the world of spirit. So back to you, Andrew. And just before the break, you'd started talking a little bit about the Sirius Cygnus dilemma. Continue with that. Um, 
Well, this week in New Scientist is a full-page article um, basically expanding the theory of an archaeo astronomer, an Italian by the name of Guilio Magli, um, which basically has proposed that the uh, that the, the stone structures at Gebekli Tepe are aligned not towards the south, towards Deneb, but towards the south, sorry, north towards Deneb, but towards the south, towards Sirius, the dog star, the brightest star of the sky. Um, and what he says is that it reappeared back on the horizon around 9,500, and that suddenly all the people saw this new star and, you know, built these monuments and pointed them towards it because it was such a, uh, a great star and a, a big revelation. And, you know, this was the reason why Gebekli Tepe was constructed. Um, I believe that this is total crap, to be honest, for the simple reason that at that time when Sirius starts reappearing on the horizon, having been away for a period of around 5,500 B.C., it is an extremely dim star and it hardly is visible on the horizon and remains a very feeble and dim star for hundreds of years after this time, barely climbing off the horizon itself before setting. And there is absolutely no reason why the hunter-gatherers of, um, of, of the whole Fertile Crescent, as, as this region is known, would have given up their cherished lifestyles um, to build the first monumental architecture um, in history to follow the, the, the path of this lost star. It just doesn't make sense at all. Um, and the other thing is that all the evidence seems to point towards those temples looking towards the north, not the south. Um, there is, for instance, uh, in one of the temples, actually a hole in the north that if you stand between the huge twin monoliths in the centre of them, you would actually be able to see Deneb setting down within the actual hole as it hit the horizon. Um, and many of the other temples in this region were all orientated quite specifically towards the north, and they were so even before Sirius started to appear on the horizon. In other words, whatever interest that they had, whatever reason or motivation for their orientation, it certainly was nothing to do with a feeble star appearing on the, the southern horizon for the first time, you know, for several thousand years. And, so, Andrew, so, Andrew, what, yeah. tell, us, tell us then what you think happened and why these temples got built and why they were aligned to Deneb. And, and, and tell us about that. Well... The thing about Deneb is that, as I said, it is the brightest star in Cygnus. Cygnus itself sits astride the Milky Way at the exact point of the opening of the Milky Way's dark rift. Now, this, this opening looks almost like a sort of gateway. It's like a keyhole. Yeah. And when it actually sits on the horizon, it actually looks like the portal or a doorway into something. Um, now, this has been universally seen, certainly since Paleolithic times, uh, because it seems to be um, uh, depicted in uh, on the walls of certain caves um, in um, in southern France. 
um, as the entrance of the sky world um, or the entrance out from, you know, sorry, the, the, the exit from our world, you know, the perceived world that we live in, into the next world, which was seen to be accessed through certain points in the sky, one of which was the dark rift within the Milky Way. And this, as I said, this is universally found, and it makes sense for these temples to have been associated with the whole process of death and rebirth into the next world. Um, and not just the transference of the souls from this world, which they would have seen in the form of birds flying towards the north, which is the, the, the direction that migrational birds go, but the new souls coming back from the north um, and obviously incarnating within people, um, you know, at the point of birth, because I'm, I'm sure that what Gebekli Tepe was, was a place of rebirth and, and death. It was a place where um, in death the souls would pass over into the next world. It was possibly even places where people, where births, important births took place. Um, and if this is the case, and this is only one of the functions of it, we may come into others, then they would have associated this activity with the sky world, with the other world, which they would have seen in terms of the starry sky. And the most obvious place that they were looking to, towards this was the Milky Way and the, you know, the, the, um, the pinnacle of the Milky Way, which would have been in the area of Cygnus and the area of the Dark Rift, which would have been you know, the opening. I mean, for instance, the Maya, um, they also believed that the Dark Rift was um, the place of death and rebirth. Um, and they believed that this is where the sun was reborn from within the dark rift, that it would actually, you know, come down this channel and be reborn on the horizon at the time of the winter solstice. Um, this is something obviously very familiar from the 2012 phenomena from, from the previous night, uh, sorry, from the, the, from last year, from 2012. Um, and that, this was their focus of their religious beliefs and practices, um, which I believe were going on here, you know, throughout the whole period of its existence. And what they would do is they'd create a new temple um, every maybe 100 years or so um, and decommission one of the older ones. Um, and this would be covered over and the new one would either be built on top of it or within the mound that was gradually forming around um, this site. Um, and this went on for about 1,500 years. And although by the end of it, some of their ideas started to change, some of the directions of the of these temple enclosures started to shift towards the sun and not the, the stars, this interest in the northern night sky and the Milky Way and the Cygnus constellation is something which was retained through the millennia until it starts to surface again in places like um, Babylon, Samaria, ancient Egypt, uh, in the Indus Valley, um, and obviously in many other parts of the world. Um, so, so it was a universal belief in the power of, of, of the bird, the celestial bird, being the symbol of the transformation of the soul. 
So I just wanted to come back to December 21st, 2012, because there was a big focus then on, on the dark rift. Uh, but I didn't hear anybody mention Deneb or, or the Swan. So uh, what was there a connection f- from your well, perspective? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the funny thing was is that everybody was focusing on the area of Sagittarius, which is at the bottom end of the dark rift and saying, oh, the sun was going to be reborn from here. And they kept saying that um, the sun is actually, the, the, the dark rift was like some kind of birth tube. But not one person mentioned that the beginning of that birth tube is Cygnus. Um, and if you actually start looking into Mayan mythology, as I did uh, when I did my book, The Cygnus Mystery, um, you'll find that they actually saw this as the point of entry and exit into the sky world. It was seen sometimes as this huge Cayman crocodile or the mouth of it going inside it, the gullet of it. At other points, it would seem to have been seen as a bird, this macaw, which sits upon the top of the tree in Mayan art, which is unquestionably the Milky Way. So the macaw would be in the place of uh, Deneb then? Yeah, absolutely. It's a place where where the Milky Way splits in two, um, you know, being caused from the, uh, the the dark rift. So, you know, I mean, as I say, this was a universal idea, but I think there was more to it than this because the, the interest in Cygnus was associated with the idea of first creation. You know, it was seen as, as the place in the sky where the bird of creation created the egg that when it was hacked, when it hatched, became the sky, it became the earth, it became... It's a universal principle. It's in the South Seas of the Pacific. It's in India. It's in Egypt, um, in in North America. Um, This idea of this bird of creation um, being the Cygnus constellation and that this bringing forth the universe through an egg or through its call or something is something that's found again and again. So why should it be believed that this area of the sky was so important? Well, two reasons. Firstly, is that Deneb had been a former pole star. Now, today the pole star is Polaris, but due to what's known as precession, which is the slow wobble of the Earth across a cycle of 26,000 years, the position of what's known as the celestial pole, the turning of point of the heavens, moves in a big circle. And at the moment, it's synchronized with the star Polaris in the constellation of Ursa Minor. But around 15,000 BC, it was synchronized with Deneb in the Cygnus constellation. So um, Andrew, Andrew this, we're actually coming to our second break, so I'll, I'll bring you back to your to finish this point and your second point when we return. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Being Outside the Box is your thrival guide to living outside this reality. Are you always waiting for your ship to come in? Do problems happen to you? What if you created your life rather than sitting by waiting? Do you live in the fantasies of this reality? Winning the lottery, waiting for your prince, princess to come? 
even being healthy? Do you always do what is expected of you rather than choosing for you? What if the rules didn't apply, and what if you could thrive from a different space? Join host Lynn Waldrop for Tools to Being Outside the Box. Listen Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tong. Just want to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors for this series of shows. Sherry Chase of Chase International Real Estate Company in beautiful Lake Tahoe and Reno. And also to thank Brandy, my producer, and Matt, who's our regular engineer from Voice America, who provide the opportunity for us to have some phenomenally great shows with wonderful experts in their own field of spirituality. And not least of which is one of those today, Andrew Collins, who is giving us an incredible insight into an area of the sky that perhaps we have not considered seriously before, but will be from now on, which is the Cygnus constellation and the main star of the Cygnus constellation, Deneb. And I cut you off just before the break, Andrew. You were were talking about uh, two points you wanted to make, so please do continue. Um. Uh, I've forgotten what those points are, so we'll, we'll just uh, continue on. Well, uh, all right, okay, yes, I've got you. Right. The other reason why Cygnus could be important is that it's one of the only places where cosmic rays are certainly known to come from. Um, in fact, the cosmic rays that come from Cygnus and, and a particular object within it known as Cygnus X3 are among the strangest ever recorded by science. In fact, they're so strange that they would that they were thought possibly to be new particles, um, and were actually given the the name Cygnus. That's their official name, um, and this was the name that was given to them in the the nineteen um, was it seventies or eighties? Eighties no, originally, um, when they were detected in various underground particle um, uh, facilities that were that were actually trying to monitor. Um, and look for the dec- the decay of um, a tiny subatomic particle known as the the proton. Um, and what happened was that that they kept getting this interference um, that rose and fell um, every four point eight hours. 
um, and they wondered what it was for the for time being. This wasn't. This was in places in Europe, places in um, in America, various places around the world. And these were places that were hundreds of meters underground. You know, and the reason why they'd been chosen at the bottom of the mines or with, or deep within mountains was to stop cosmic radiation because we're bombarded by cosmic radiation all the time. It's just hitting us all the time. It's passing through us. Um, and essentially, it's, it's, it doesn't affect us. Um, but if you go down into deep rock, the rock itself stops the cosmic radiation getting through. But these scientists in these underground particle uh, facilities were finding that, that something was getting through. Now, when they actually worked it out, they realized that it was coming from deep space somewhere, and there was only one object in the sky that had exactly the same cycle or orbit as these incoming cosmic rays, and that was Cygnus X3. Um, and this started a series of studies looking at these, these very, very strange particles um, that were coming from this object. Now, let me describe what this object is. <coughs> it's either a black hole or a neutron star. Um, now, both of these are what are known as collapsed stars. I mean, basically, when a, um, a, you know, a, a normal star like our own sun uses up all of its energy, eventually it will collapse down in on itself um, and form one of three different objects depending upon the original mass of that, um, of that star. Now, it can either become a black hole, a neutron star, or a white dwarf. Well, it's my feeling that it is actually a neutron star. Um, and this neutron star is in a very tight orbit with, an, with another um, very large sun-like object, which is sucking, pulling off all of the energy within it and absorbing it in some way and using that energy in some way. Now, neutron stars aren't very big at all. I mean, when you think of a star, you think of something that's going to be absolutely huge, but like our own sun, presumably, but no. A neutron star can be about sort of 15, 20 miles across. I mean, that's all they are, and... You know, they're, they're just a solid ball of energy that, that's mostly um, plasma. Um, and very occasionally, it sends out these jets of plasma along the lines of, uh, of their axis. Um, and these jets shoot out into space across light years. And anything in their path basically gets destroyed. Now... The important thing about Cygnus X3 is one of these axes, meaning that one of these particle beams is actually pointing towards our solar system. And this is when, and when this happens, these objects become known as blazers. Um, and this is, this is the only blazer that has been identified within our own galaxy, our own Milky Way galaxy. So you've got this object out in space that bursts into life occasionally and shoots these cosmic rays towards us. Now, they're coming towards us, you know, most of the time um, here and there, but there are huge concentrations of them when Cygnus X3 comes to life. Um, I mean, and we know that this is happening because it also sends out 
energies and particles on other frequencies as well, like um, um, uh, X-rays, for instance, um, infrared radiation, um, radio waves are also sent out. So it's on multiple frequencies, but amongst those frequencies, oh, and gamma, gamma rays as well. Um, but also, as I said, even beyond gamma rays is something else, something with an even higher energy, these cosmic rays that reach us. Now, these cosmic rays are so strong, so powerful, that they penetrate hundreds of meters of rock and can interfere with these scientific experiments going on in deep mines and, and in mountains. Now, if you go back to the Paleolithic Age, maybe let's say, you know, 15,000 BC, when a lot of the beautiful cave art was being, you know, painted in, um, in southwest Europe, you've got, you know, these shamans um, going in here, spending lots of time, sensory deprivation, probably they're taking psychotropic drugs. Um, they're in here. And then suddenly, there's a flash in front of them. Now, what's that flash? Well, we can actually see cosmic rays. This is a very little-known fact. But in absolute darkness, um, when a cosmic ray passes through the viscous part of the eye or the nerves of an eye, it can produce an effect that makes us appear to see a flash of light. Now, you can actually try this for yourself if you really want. If, if you've got a, an area in your house that's absolutely total in darkness um, and, you can there, and you can maybe tape out even the remainder, right, remaining darkness that's coming in from the outside, if you stay in there long enough, eventually you will start seeing flashes. Now, these are known as phosphenes and these phosphenes can be caused by one of a number of processes but one cause of phosphenes is incoming cosmic rays. Now, if you can imagine these shamans deep underground, suddenly there's this flash of light, and maybe it triggers some kind of visionary experience, communication with the other world, you know, um, uh, new knowledge, new information. This is something that they're going to see as seeing the light, experiencing the light, um, and it won't take them wrong, long to realize that these experiences occur most when Cygnus is in the sky up, ahead, up above because that's the times when these cosmic rays are most experienced deep underground. In other words, Cygnus has to be in view for these cosmic rays to start hitting the Earth and penetrating deep underground. It may have taken them a generation or two to work this out, but I think eventually they would have realized there was a connection between their visionary experiences and the Cygnus constellation. Um, and I believe that the information that was coming to them was about the origins, the source of everything, the source of God, the source of creation. And that aside from the various other reasons that I've already discussed, that Cygnus began to be seen as the place of first creation in the sky. Um, and the main representation that they used, the main symbol, became the bird. Why did they use the bird? Because the bird is a symbol of transformation. Um, one of the oldest known means of disposing of human bodies is called excarnation. Now, this 
is essentially you take the, 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 the dead body, you place it on a platform, and vultures in various countries, um, you know, other types of birds in others, obviously, would come down, pick the, the, um, the flesh from the body, um, and leave behind the bones. And the bones would then be collected up and buried in what's known as a secondary or disarticulated um, burial. Um, and so the, the bird, the, particularly the vulture or carrion birds like crows and ravens, became, a, became the main symbols of transformation of the soul. But unfortunately, as the millennia ticked by, these were seen as unsightly birds and that they were gradually phased out in place of birds like um, eagles, hawks and doves and pigeons and things like that were used to symbolise the soul because the soul was became integrally bound up with the idea that the birds take the soul away to the place of the afterlife. Now, if you can think that Cygnus is the primary celestial bird in the sky this was seen therefore as almost a marker within the sky of where that soul would end up in death and where the souls of the newborn children come from we all know the story of the stalk bringing new babies into the world but in parts of europe it's not a stalk that brings new babies into the world it's a swan the swan is the primary symbol of Cygnus. So, Andrew, I'm going to stop you there because I, I actually want you to, when we come back, just talk a little bit about what the mythology is around where the soul goes when it leaves the body and when it comes back, which obviously is uh, going to be involving uh, the swan and Deneb. Fascinating discussion with uh, Andrew Collins. It's Peter Tongue for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network. Do you want to reach your highest potential in your personal and business life? Come and join our heart-centered community with Peter Tung and Sherry Chase. Embrace love, abundance, integrity, and personal empowerment in a safe and sacred space for your awakening. Our intention is to lay the groundwork for you to advance your awareness efficiently, to be fully involved in the conscious co-creation of peace and prosperity on our beautiful planet. Go to MyHeartCenteredJourney.com for more information. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. Be the change. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network.
listening to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with Peter Tong. If you have a question for Peter or comment on this series, please send an email to descendingdove at gmail.com. That's descendingdove at gmail.com. Now back to our program. Welcome back to Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation with your host, Peter Tung. Having a fascinating discussion today with Andrew Collins. And Andrew, just uh, tell our listeners how they can connect with your work and uh, tell us what's going on in your world in the next few weeks. Okay, well, um, if they want to connect with my world, please come and see me at andrewcollins.com, um, which is just all as it sounds. Um, and, you know, if they've got any questions... Um, or if they want to look at any of the, the books relating to this Cygnus mystery, for instance, um, you know, it's all there. Um, obviously, I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm off to uh, Turkey to actually go to Gebekli Tepe uh, and various other sites um, within a few weeks. We're taking a, a tour of about 35 people there, including the mysteries writer Graham Hancock is coming along with us uh, with his wife. Um, so it'll be the first time that he has actually been to Gebekli Tepe for the first time. So it'd be great to find out what he thinks. Um, and beyond that, the 16th of November, for all, all those in the UK, there is the Origins 2013 conference, uh, which I'm organising um, with my colleagues at Megalithomania. Um, and this is the, a major London event. Um, all the details are there on andrewcollins.com. So, um, you know, come and see us there. Thank you so much. So I'd love uh, for you to tell us now in terms of the mythology or uh, the belief system around when we do pass over, you talked about the, the birds eating the flesh and so on. So from your understanding of what you've done in your research, what does actually happen to the soul when it leaves the body bef- and then comes back when it when it reincarnates? Just tell us how that works from your understanding. Well, that's a, that's a very, very difficult question, isn't it? I mean, you know, look, I've been in this business for 35 years and I ask everybody I can possibly ask what happens when we die. I I ask mysteries writers, I asked psychics, I asked visionaries, um, and the honest answer is that they don't know. Um, And I think that it's one of those mysteries of life that people actually do not know until it actually happens. Um, All I can say is that I've built up enough belief within me um, during that time to know that something happens um, and that, you know, we don't just stop at the point of death. But I do believe that in part what happens to us after we leave the body is of our own making. Um, And what I mean by that is that the initial imagery, um, maybe for the first, you know, step, the first part of the way, will be based upon our own beliefs um, and convictions during our life. Now, I'd like to think that when I die, um, you know, I will become a, a soul bird, basically, and that some part of me will go off to sickness. I mean, I've already given instructions um, to people, you know, to, to, to actually take my ashes to a place um, that's associated with sickness um, and to actually fire off a rocket with those ashes in, in the direction of the Cygnus stars, um, because, you know, I, I want the idea that we are returning back to the source 
you know, to continue that whole idea. And I'd like to think that, you know, people will remember me from the fact that, you know, when they look up at the stars of Cygnus, that's where I am now. You know, I, I mean, OK, it's a fantasy, but it, it's what I would like in my life. Whether this happens or not, I really, really do not know. But as far as strengthening your belief, your connection with Cygnus is concerned, um, I mean, what I would do, for instance, is um, I would actually, you know, put yourself into a meditative state, um, either outside or within your own home and visualizing yourself outside. And you can see all the stars around you. Um, and what I would do is I would see coming from behind you, from the south, um, birds, you know, presumably um, swans. Um, they're the main symbol associated with, with Cygnus. Um, and that as they come over you, you know, that you are in some way drawn up into the flock and actually become one of those birds um, as uh, that are then flying into deep space further and further away from the ground and you're going towards the Cygnus stars and eventually you just focus on one of those stars. Let's say it's Deneb, um, the brightest one, um, and you go towards it and that star is getting brighter and brighter and brighter until it absolutely envelops you, almost like you're going into the sun itself. Um, and once you actually enter inside this absolute light, then you're in the other world. You're in the sky world. Um, you're in a place that's comfortable, a place where you can meet, you know, maybe the, the ancestors, maybe meet the spirit of, of the swan, some kind of goddess perhaps, you know, or even a god, of course, um, where you can communicate with what I would say would be the star itself. I mean, I think that there's good evidence, and I've written about this, that stars are alive just in the same way that we see the earth as almost like a, a mother, a conscious living being. I think the stars are alive as well. Um, and I particularly believe that black holes, neutron stars, you know, compact stars like this, you know, are alive in some way. I mean, they're mostly plasma, and plasma has been shown to be an environment where some kind of proto-intelligence um, can exist. Um, this is work that's been done, for instance, by the quantum physicist David Bohm um, did work on this idea um, that, that there may be some kind of proto-intelligence existing within plasma environments. One of the most obvious forms of that is the neutron star. Um, and so you can actually think that you are communicating with the star itself, you know, and that star could have affected human evolution. I say that because cosmic rays do have the occasional effect upon body cells, upon the DNA within those cells. It can delete DNA, it can change it, um, it can update it, and this can cause major changes within the body itself. You know, it might have even given us speech at one time. Um, it may well have changed our intelligence or made us more intelligent. Um, and I believe that, that cosmic rays have affected human evolution. And if that's the case, then that means that stars themselves, which are conscious living beings, 
that maybe the other side of, of the galaxy could be affecting the way the human race evolves down here. So um, Andrew, I think actually, we have to connect with that. We're actually at the end of our time, and that was a wonderful way to finish. And I'm just lo- loving this because next week my guest is Peter Dawkins, and he's going to be talking, uh, this was not a plan, but it's worked out this way, about the swan actually on the landscape features within planet Earth, particularly in Europe and North America. And so it's going to be absolutely fascinating to put these two shows together because I know that you don't know each other. So the consciousness is just absolutely magnificent. So thank you so much for today, Andrew. I've really enjoyed uh, listening to the wonderful insights that you have. Thank you so very much. It's my pleasure. Whew, take a deep breath. So as I said, my guest next week is Peter Dawkins, who, who is almost looking at this from the other perspective of the, the swan landing on the landscape. And he's going to be talking about the swan of Avon in Stratford-upon-Avon and the Axis Monday of North America, all connecting back into the same uh, ideas that Andrew has talked about today. AndrewCollins.com. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Have a wonderful week. It's Peter Tung for Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation. We hope that you found this week's show to be enlightening and inspiring. Please join host Peter Tong for another edition of Awakening to Conscious Creation next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network.